Deborah Craddock, a podcast where we sit down with everyday Americans and hear their extraordinary stories. I'm your host, Deborah Drucker. Come along with me as we discuss those things that we were always told not to talk about politics, religion, and more. I promise you'll be inspired and have your mind opened by the end of this episode. Well, it was kind of cold that night. She stood alone on the balcony Yeah, she could hear the cars roll by Out on 441 Like waves crashing on the beach Hello everyone and welcome to Debracratic. Today on Debracratic, we will be meeting Miles Reed. Miles is a business executive and entrepreneur, an avid reader, and a man with strong family values. Let's find out how Miles became the ambitious man he is sitting with us today. How are you today, Miles? I'm wonderful. Good to be here with you. I'm so happy to finally get a chance to talk with you sort of face-to-face, digitally speaking. I know. This is our first virtual interview here at Democratic, so I'm so yeah. happy that you're joining us. I want to get to the start of it. Where are you originally from? I am born and raised in Detroit, Michigan. I have two brothers that are, are still there. I have a brother that is in Atlanta, Georgia, or the northern part of uh, that region. And my family migrated to the Detroit area, like many black Americans, uh, sort of during the industrial age, coming up from the South, taking those uh, really good, solid factory jobs. And uh, both my grandparents on both sides followed that path. And I grew up there in Detroit. Then I uh, went to high school there and then went to undergraduate school at the University of Michigan. So I'm a big Wolverines fan right there, just 40 miles outside of uh, Detroit, Michigan. So, yeah. Nice. Well, I was born in Mount Clemens, Michigan. Oh, right. Uh, Yes. Okay. My father was stationed in the Air Force, and I was born there. And my father was actually born in Atlanta, Georgia. So we have a couple similarities right there. Absolutely. My mother's side of the family is from the Atlanta area. That's wild. That's fantastic. That's really cool. So Mm. you say you grew up with two brothers and your parents? Uh, Three brothers. So my, my parents, uh, I have one brother that's one year and nine days older than I am, and two younger brothers, three and six years younger. Uh, my parents were married, I would count it as what they used to say, a shotgun. Somebody got pregnant uh, very early on, and people were going to get married, <laughs> so they did. And my parents were married uh, for about 11 years, and my parents then divorced when I was 10. My brother was 11, uh, and then we lived in Detroit, and you know we lived the life of as most people live, as divorced children, it was, you know, fairly challenging economically. My mother was, she worked a little bit here, but we were on welfare. And we were very much busy with, you know, delivering paper routes early in the morning and, you know, doing everything that we could to contribute to the household economically. Was that a happy home life? I would say so. I mean, with regard to uh, the dynamics between us as a family, I would say yes. But I do recall there was yeah, a fair amount of consternation between my mother and my dad, uh, even after after the divorce. So uh, and with in that sense, uh, you knew that the things weren't really hunky-dory, uh, super pleasant and, and smooth between them as we were, you know, teenagers, and et cetera. 
But uh, with regard to the connection to the other family members, yeah, really, really good. Did you stay close with your dad? No, actually, um, dur- for a period of time, no, because I would say that my, my dad during the divorce period after, say, from 10 until when my mother passed when I was in college, he was, a, I would count it, he was a pretty poor uh, divorced dad. You know, he was in the city, but we wouldn't see him so often. You could go a full year and, and not see him. And then we would accidentally run into him at relatives' houses. I'm sure he had reasons and conditions that were beyond children's understanding. But after my mother passed away, uh, then at that point, we decided to to reconcile. We had a, a good, strong conversation. And, and then we decided, hey, things happened in the past. They were those things. And let's move forward. So then that created a great foundation to reestablish and build. And we've been having a great relationship since that time. Oh, good. Wonderful. And <clears throat> your mom passed away. How old were you when that happened? I was 20. I was at the University of Michigan working, and it was really tough. My mother had uh, some serious mental challenges. Uh, she had a fairly tough life. Uh, she grew up uh, in a home where my grandparents were, you know, loving to us as grandchildren, and they worked. They retired, so they were very faithful in that way, but they also liked to party, and my mother used to tell me these stories, and it was really tough for her. She had to take care of her younger sister as the adults were partying and doing their weekend parties because they worked so hard during the week, and that was tough for her. And she, and she got married to my dad to kind of sort of get away from that. And then uh, she felt that she had kind of jumped from one fire to another. So that was really kind of tough. It began to become dangerous during the mid-80s when I was in high school. That was when uh, drugs became really big. Crack cocaine was introduced to most major cities in that time. And so a lot of things were, were much more dangerous for us. And I remember I had been uh, robbed one time in high school. I had been shot at, at in high school. A kid was murdered in my high school. I had two... One of my, my, my oldest brother, when I was on my class senior trip, he had been shot a few times. He, he's, he lives, thank God for that. And I think a lot of that presented a lot of pressure for her. So I recall when I went away to college, I was sort of one of the more stable of the four. And so we had a, she relied upon me quite a bit during that time. And it was an emotional moment when I went. I was only 40 minutes away, but uh, not in the home at that point. So uh, it started to show a lot of mental frame. And I remember a lot of uh, my brothers would call and say, hey, you know, something's not right at home. So then it became clear she was manic depressant and, and a lot of drama that uh, entered into the home. And as I was in school during those years, uh, I would have to you know, speak with her and, and uh, you know, you have to convince your mom, hey, yeah, no, this is not a good time to drive off the bridge. She, like we would have those kind of conversations. So that, to, that was very stressful for everybody. And, uh, you know, when someone's in that state of mind, it's difficult for an individual on the outside to be convincing uh, that they shouldn't commit suicide. Well, sometimes from those situations come the kids that they become kind of the caregivers in the household, and they become the responsible ones. Because what I'm gathering is that you were kind of always a responsible person, and you you kind of had to be, I guess. That's right. I actually have an interesting story about that. Um, it didn't. It wasn't clear to me that that was the case. I knew that I needed to have money because we were on welfare, and I would have paper routes. And my older brother had paper routes, so you get up early to deliver your papers and in the afternoon after school. So that was fun. I had money. My my uh, neighborhood friends they didn't have money, so I I could do stuff, which was nice. But uh, one summer I was twelve, and I was uh, okay athletic, so I played uh, football in the summer, and that was fun. But I didn't have a paper route because, of course, you can't do both. And it wasn't until school started that I realized I didn't have money to buy school clothes for the coming year. 
And it hit me, oh, I, I can't play sports because I won't have money for, for school clothes when the school year started. So yeah, you, you, you learn to make kind of adult-like decisions uh, when you have that kind of situation. So you just make the trade-off and that's fine. So how do you feel about a social network for those like your family that fell into this needing to be on welfare and, and what about mental health support? Was there any out there to access for your mom in, in that financial situation? No, none that I can recall. My, my mother had a great relationship with her siblings and with her parents, but she was quite uh, kind of by herself as, as it is. And it's quite tough, you know, to be a, a mother of four boys and to and when a father's not really present to really exert yourself to keep good structure. And my mom was really good to impart a lot of good life wisdom and uh, kept us on the right track as best as she could. And uh, but that's quite stressful for a woman to handle all of that uh, by herself. And again, I think I recall that um, it became quite stressful in Detroit. Again, this is the thing that's quite interesting. Children that grow up in a poorer community tend to undergo a lot more stress than people who live in a, in a middle class, safer neighborhood. Uh, it's just a lot of stress. And we had moments where there were conflicts with uh, other hoodlums in the neighborhood that was really sort of traumatizing and terrifying for my mom. So I think that anybody who's exposed to a lifelong period of trauma and stress, it can fray uh, the psyche. And so that is what we saw with her. Okay. And how did everybody turn out? Because clearly you ended up going on to university and then going on for your master's. So did anybody else uh, end up graduating college? Yeah. Um, my older brother, actually, he went to, uh, it was an engineering school. I think he had the wrong friends. I remember that. Uh, he was too close to friends who were not productive. So then after a year, he just dropped out. But then he just worked. He worked, has had several jobs, but he's had a long career working at Chrysler. So he's been doing that for 20 years or so. The brother right beneath me, he eventually went to uh, Eastern Michigan and graduated there. But he's working now as a contractor. And my youngest brother, he went to Ferris State, which is in Big Rapids, Michigan, and he is a teacher. He does really fantastic work, and uh, he works with troubled youths. What an honorable thing he's doing. And are you close with all, all your brothers still? Yeah, absolutely. And you have two children? Yes, a boy and a girl. All right. That's a joy, right? And you get to raise them completely differently. <laughs> <laughs> I was very excited for them. They had uh, the track and field district championship yesterday. So my daughter, as a 14-year-old, won the junior varsity 100-meter hurdle. That was fantastic. Bravo. And my son, he also was the champion for the district in the 100-meter. Well, congratulations. So, uh, Wonderful. I want to go back sure. to the family dynamic that you grew up in. Were politics discussed, or did politics ever play any role in the home when you were coming up? Not in a, a very explicit way. I, I sort of knew that we were more of a Democratic family. I kind of knew that. I do recall my grandmother, uh, she would often reflect, I remember we would just visit, but whenever it would come up, and it came up more than one time, she would say, yeah, and they killed Kennedy, and she was staring to the distance, and it happened many times, so I think, of course, she was impacted by Martin Luther King and his assassination, but it always was a specific kind of reflection, yeah, they killed Kennedy, so that let me know that President Kennedy really meant something for her, uh, and maybe for the black community at that time. So uh, that was my kind of initial um, kind of understanding of politics in our home. How did you arrive at your political perspective today? 
Quite a journey. I think as a person, I've always been engaged. I'll put it that way, as opposed to saying political. Uh, when I was in high school, I was class vice president. So you have to run for that. And that's a level of engagement. When I was in at the University of Michigan, I participated in a lot of protests and I was involved in this fraternity and, you know, that kind of thing. And at Columbia Graduate School of Business, I was the president of the Black Student Union. So I've always been engaged in this sense. But what I when I started out, I remember my first voting opportunity. It was when Jesse Jackson was running, you know, keep hope alive. That was his theme. And that was my first moment to, to vote. And I voted Democratic, uh, I think, the first two times. Of course, as you move away and live life on your own, I began to meet different people and, and consider things independently and not progressively began to realize there were things in the Democratic Party that I didn't think was as productive for me. Uh, so then I started to, you know, look at other, you know, the alternatives that were out there, uh, whether it's uh, being independent or Tea Party or Republicanism, et cetera. And so did you grow up uh, in your in your coming up? Did you have religion in the house? Were you a person of faith at that time or was the family devout? Yeah, it's a nuanced answer. So. In my core family, my mother and my brothers, we didn't really go to church regularly. Uh, we went to church, of course, on the major days, you know, Easter, stuff like that. But my grandmother, my mother's mother was very, she was like your praying grandmother, the classic praying grandmother. And so she went to church all the time. So periodically we would go to church uh, with her. But I would say that the the sort of trigger point, I, I am a believer in Jesus. I am a Christian. But that started for me when I was, I think, maybe 12. And when I grew up, I used to speak with a lisp. It was difficult for me to say words that ended with an S. So my name today is Miles. I re recall this because adults used to make fun of me, and that kind of gave me a little bit of an insecurity about it. But I used to say, my name is Math. That was the best that I could do, Math. So when I was 12, my grandmother said to me, she was trying to get us exposed. She knew that we didn't go to church regularly. She gave me a one sheet of paper that was the Lord's Prayer. And she said, look, I want you to memorize this and say it every day. So I love my grandmother and I just sort of did it dutifully. Sure. OK, I'll do it. So as I began to memorize it, I had a negotiation with God. I said, God, OK, I'm going to learn this here, but you have to fix my tongue. I need to speak clearly. So I memorized it and that went on. And then one day I could speak clearly. And I was like, what? So then I began to have a realization. Oh, maybe that God exists. So then my, myself and my younger brother, we decided to go and get saved and get baptized when I was 14 and he was 11. We just went by ourselves. My mother never went to church. So that was the first sort of beginning of how religion came into our home uh, through, through a grandmother, basically. Beautiful. So does religion inform your life today? Yeah, absolutely. My, my wife and I, we met on a, a website called Christian Cafe, quite frankly. And I remember as I was going through internet dating, I had done that, like I mentioned to you earlier, since 1998, when no one was doing it. When I was single working with American Express, I belonged to a singles group and they would jokingly say, oh, I heard about this internet dating, There's a lot of weirdos to do it. And I was like, yeah, a lot of weirdos do it. But I was going home and I was exploring, trying to figure it out. And what I, what I discovered is that, of course, I knew as I was going through my life, I wanted to become more uh, living more as a Christian. But when I went to college, I wasn't living the traditional Christian life. I did, you know, I went to parties. And I did the stuff, you know, I had girlfriends and et cetera. So I led a life that wasn't so biblically Christian. But as I got out of graduate school, I had this feeling I wanted to begin to 
reignite that and that led to a progression of wanting to choose a a, a wife that uh, saw that as important uh, and that was how that led me down that path so my, my wife and i we we're active members of our church grace plano church here in plano texas <laughs> and so we are we're happy with that and we uh, have been trying to uh, educate our children about life principles and and how to think about how they conduct themselves and live in this world and think about the world with the biblical uh, lens. So that's been very important for us. I think, you know, religion is a beautiful thing and helps people through so many points in life. And I think it gives a lot of people boundaries and a lot of reason. So, so I believe in it when used properly. And I think it's a personal thing. So I'm, I'm not big on, you know, pushing it on other people, but I'm a live and let live person and I, I really appreciate your perspective. Thank you. And I want to go back to you being a man of color. Did you have obstacles coming up getting into those colleges that you went to or did you have more access because of your color or tell me what that's like? It's a really interesting question and I think that it's the kind of thing that's worth uh, at least offering a perspective about, you know, so as a person of color, I don't, I don't really like the term black because as you can see me, I'm, my skin color is brown, but okay, it's the term that we use. Okay. So right. and certainly in the 80s, and even today, we live in the wake of Martin Luther King. So uh, Martin Luther King, the civil rights movement and Title IX. So remember the largest group or constituent group that benefited from Martin Luther King's work are white women because Title IX wouldn't have come about without the Civil Rights Act. Uh, but with that, Title IX and then affirmative action, all of that created an environment for access that didn't exist before, uh, both for women and also people of color. I don't have any direct information that I personally was selected because I was a person of color. But again, I, I went to college in a time when they were looking to give access and op to opportunities that didn't exist for people of color and women. Uh, uh, and so I would say, I guess so. But for sure, in all those instances, I saw people of color be fired uh, and promote it. And uh, so I think you, at the end of the day, organizations need to choose individuals that can add value. Uh, and I think that that was the case for me. I had to perform. And there, I had, I've actually had a job where I didn't perform well enough for a boss. And I thought I was going to get fired, but uh, we just didn't get along. But I went to Europe where they didn't have the same historical issue about race and I became a chief financial officer. So I think if you perform uh, the opportunities, uh, people will they will need you because you can add value. So how do you feel then about affirmative action? Yeah, so in general, I believe in the idea of uh, equal access, not equal outcomes, uh, because you have to still perform. Now, what I will say, I think we have to think about uh, the segments of progression of race in America. So I think the, this is my perspective, and there probably are scholars that are more informed that can offer a more detailed answer, but this will be my, my view on it. I think the question becomes, why was affirmative action necessary? And I think the same you could ask, why was Title IX necessary? Okay, so you had a way of working, a system of individuals in positions of authority, decision-making that were not allowing sufficient numbers of people of color or women to, to participate, to go to college, to be considered for certain types of jobs. So, and so these two legislative moves, affirmative action, was about creating access. We are now 40 years after that. I think the conditions in America are not the same as they were in, in the 1970s. So you could argue that affirmative action, the conditions that required affirmative action are 
present today because we've had a generation where people who are white men, white women, black people, etc., have recognized that value can be created by all people. So then in this world of, of competitiveness, you're looking for people who can add value. So I think the environment is not the same today. So, for example, I think it's being debated, should affirmative action go away? And I think that I'm, I'm not advocating for it to go away, but I think that the conditions for affirmative action are not the same today as it was in the 70s. And you could say the same thing for Title IX, quite frankly. Okay. And when you did yourself go to college, how did you finance that? Did you have to student loan? You know, actually, that's a very interesting point. And I was hoping we would get to this. It's interesting that you you brought it up because I didn't share this information with you previously. My life, I've been so, when I stop and reflect, has had so many turns and experiences that I could not have designed. So I'd had a lot of loans. Uh, in undergraduate, I was a poor college student, you know, credit cards, loans. I had some grants at the University of Michigan, but a lot of loans. And when I went to graduate school, tons of loans. In fact, when I graduated, uh, the magazine called Money Magazine, it still exists in digital form. But back then in the 1990s, I graduated in 95. They had a, it was very popular to have this physical magazine. They were doing an article on the cost of graduate school and, and asking the question, is it worth it? So they were doing a feature article of a of a doctor, a, a lawyer, and a professional person in business. They happened to contact Columbia Graduate School of Business, and they said, do you have a student that had a lot of loans? And they knew me because I worked in that department as a, as a part-time job. They said, oh, yes, we have a perfect person for you. Miles Reed, he just graduated. I was working for Quaker Oats in Chicago, and they contacted me. So I was the featured person on this article talking about the challenges of having a lot of loans and, and would I reconsider. And I, I, I did say, I wonder what my life would be if I didn't have it because I had a lot of burden. But eventually I, I did pay it off. I, I said I was going to you know, take every bonus that I had to pay it off early, and I did do that. So even though it was a big financial burden, it opened up opportunities for me that I would not have had had I not done that. So Yes, I had a lot of student loans. Okay, so in hindsight, going to that graduate school was worth the debt. Absolutely. But you have to pick the right field. You can't pick something that doesn't lead to someone thinking that that's valuable. I think if you did something like gender studies or art history, I think that you will find it difficult to find someone to pay you money for that. So you have to have some kind of skill that people are willing to pay you for and so having all this education, you get out of your master's program at Columbia. And where do you go from there? Yeah, so then I was in New York City for those two years in graduate school. And then I went to Chicago and I worked for Quaker Oats. I was there for about a year and a half. I am from Michigan, as we talked about earlier. So I am used to the cold. But Chicago has a special kind of cold. And I really didn't like it. And one of my college roommates, he also is from Michigan, Bay City, Michigan, and he and his wife moved to Arizona, then to San Diego. And I was complaining that it was so cold. And he said, hey, you know, here in San Diego, we've got jobs. We're hiring. I said, perfect. I quit my job. I got hired at Hewlett Packard in San Diego. And I was working there. And that was fantastic. Very different world. I mean, you go to work in shorts. You leave work. You go to golf or you can go to the beach and you jog on the beach on the weekends. It was an entirely different world. But... There is something that happens to the mind of students when they go to graduate school. They put in your head, certainly in like a school like Columbia that produces a lot of business successful people, and you think, I can conquer the world. And I thought, I'm, my life is pretty slow motion here in San Diego. So I had to go back to New York, which is then 
how I went back to American Express in New York City. And I did that for almost 11 years or so. That was great. I did a lot of different kinds of work. Of course, I started with them in the finance area. I then uh, worked in strategy. And then I was at worked in marketing for about four years. And, um, and that was great to do. But that led up to the time in which I, I met my wife. Uh, and along that journey, I, had, um, I was also writing a book. So all of that things were converging at the same time. Right. I saw you wrote a book titled Fishing for Love on the Net. Yeah, that's right. That was, uh, you know, it wasn't commercially very successful, but it was personally the most, probably the most rewarding sort of project that I've ever had because it's what it meant to me. Uh, after I got married in 2006, I had just completed this book and I had uh, started to do my journey to, to market it as you would do as a self-publisher. And But along that journey, my wife and I decided to move to New York. Then I had to shut that down. What takes you then, because I know you have recently just moved back from Oslo. What was going on over there? My wife is from Norway. And when we met, uh, she was living there and I was living in New York City. We got married in 2006. And then we uh, lived together uh, just outside of New York City in West New York, New Jersey. And I uh, was going to to New York to do my, my business. So after we had our son, uh, then we were expecting our daughter. And she hadn't arrived, but we knew that we were expecting. She had a desire to move back to Norway. And, you know, quite frankly, that wasn't the first thing in my mind because I was really having a lot of momentum with the book. I was doing interviews. I was on, uh, on television, on radio. I was writing articles. So a lot of things were happening. I had infomercials running back when infomercials were kind of really popular as a marketing channel. And so everything was going in a certain way, but then I think I came to understand that it was better to do that. So then we moved to Norway and we uh, were in Oslo there. Was that to be closer to her family? I think so. I I think she still had um, really had strong connections to Norway. We we would say that she was quite uh, Norwegian uh, because, yeah, one thing I discovered in living abroad, and again, we as Americans, uh, we live in a very vast country. It's American on every end. No matter the diversity we have, it's still American. You can go to Maine or California, you know you're in America, even though the people may have different dynamics. The way of thinking is American. But what I discovered in Norway is because they are a socialist country, what I discovered was that Political systems drive a certain mentality. So America has a constitutional republic founded upon a declaration of independence, and we focus on individual rights. And so over the generations, that is our subconscious approach to life. In a socialist country, it's about the dominance of the state and its primacy to determine how you live your life. And so she is much more American, so to speak, today than she was at that time. And I think that it uh, was a bit of an adjustment for her to appreciate uh, what America was about versus being in in a more socialist environment like like Norway or the other socialist countries in Europe. Well, you must have saved a little money on health insurance. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, we try to to be very active uh, with our health, so we try not to go to the doctor. But that being said, you do have access to health care. There are a number of things about Norway that I really enjoyed, of course. There is uh, that piece you talked about that healthcare is available. You could debate whether it, the quality is the best, but at least everyone has access. But Norway, what I what I also realized before we moved is that Norway is a very safe country, and I, I knew that it would be a good place for us to raise our children, and it turned out to be that. I mean, even the big city of Oslo is a very safe city relative to many of the big cities in America. 
So it's a, it's a peaceful land in that way. So, and I enjoyed that piece of it. That'll lead me to the conversation of guns in America. I know that there's very few handguns and, and, and weapons of mass destruction, such as AK-47s and, you know, assault rifles in Europe. Um, you live in Texas. What's your stance on, on, you know, gun safety? When you understand gun laws, they really are disarmament laws. And I think people need to have the right, as the founders talked about, to uh, pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and very much a supporter of people's right to own weapons and, and, and be, but be responsible when you do it. So I think a responsible gun ownership is necessary because what we can't control is the deterioration of the heart of humans. Uh, we need a revival uh, in this nation with regard to its moral condition. That's probably, I would say, the single biggest source of the problem for America over the past 50 years. It's this deterioration morally and has led to so many self-destructive and damaging acts towards themselves and other Americans. So that's really what we, I think, where the point of focus should be. How do you feel about social services for mental health in our in our political environment today? I mean, the access for people who don't have the means to go out and hire a, you know, a first-rate psychiatrist or psychologist, where, where, where are they supposed to go for this kind of mental service? Yeah, you know? I think you highlight an extremely important point, and it gets back to our priorities as a nation. We allocate money to a lot of things uh, where I think it's not a priority for America. Uh, this, along with our veterans, I think we need to prioritize. I think it's shameful for us. We have veterans that make our nation safe, and they are treated very poorly. Uh, we, we enjoy a luxury in this nation, and we treat our nation, and they sacrifice their bodies. I mean, they're very badly treated. So I think that it's about our priorities. We need to prioritize a better mental health investments and also better treatment. Uh, medically and from a mental health perspective for our veterans. Amen. And let me just say thank you to the men who, men and women who serve this nation out there. Absolutely. We couldn't sustain without them. Um, as far as, let's get around back to politics a little bit more. How did you arrive at your political perspective today? It, it was a progression. And what I, what I saw was that as I became more aware of my faith and what that really meant to live it out, I began to see differences in, in what I, I say I believe relative to the policies that are being that were being advocated by the different political groups, and that there are a number of policies within certain political groups that don't they don't align with the Christian uh, view of life, etc. So then that naturally led me to move away from, for example, the Democratic Party because of the things that they hold out as some of their important points. Not all of them, but some of their important points that uh, run against what I would think are as important. All right. And I see things slightly differently, but I totally respect sure. your perspective. <laughs> yeah, so right. thank you for sharing. Yeah. Um, yes, and sure, I wanted sure. to ask you, because I saw that you said um, what it means to be an American outside of America. T tell me, elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah, exactly. And this connects to what I was trying to, to get across a little bit earlier, uh, a few moments ago. Again, as Americans, we, I think, uh, unknowingly, we take it for granted what it means to be an American because we live in this environment. And many Americans, this is the pro uh, preponderance of their experience and understanding of political uh, structures and ways of living. And you can uh, live an American life, but you can not be connected to 
what constitutes the foundation of that? Like, what is the Declaration of Independence, and what are those those rights codified to to represent that in the Constitution? But I remember when I went to Norway, and I was just like that too. So I don't point the crooked finger. I was like every a lot of Americans. But when I got to Norway, I began to feel like, well, this environment is different. I just felt it. I didn't say, hey, this doesn't align with the Second Amendment or the Fifth Amendment. I didn't have that thought. But I remember when I first moved there, the government came into our condo and they were checking how many extension cords that we had. And they said, no, you have too many extension cords. And I was like, what? This, I could decide what I want to do. This is my house. You know, that's, that was my American response. And that was the beginning of me recognizing, whoa, that. And, but people, they, they like that. They, oh, yeah, the government, they know, they know best. And I said, no, they don't know best. So then that helped me to understand why there's a difference. You know, I will tell you one thing. I'll share something with you. I've, I've shared this with a few people since returning. I was asked the question by my colleagues. So I, I was treated very well when I was with this company in, in Scandinavia. We worked, our, our area of operation was in Scandinavia and Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. And so I had colleagues across those countries. And when I left, they gave me a great going away party. And they asked me a question. And I told them, it, are you sure you want the answer to this question? Because it could be difficult to hear. So they asked me, of my time that I was in Scandinavia, what was my biggest disappointment? And what was the biggest disappointment for me was how much contempt and vitriol Norwegians and Scandinavians have for America and Americans. It was very hostile. Uh, I remember being attacked verbally. Is that towards a specific political party? Is that towards a specific leader? Or is that just America in general as a whole? Just America in general. I, I would be... Um, now, of course, I do think there probably are certain elements that they wanted to talk about that were maybe connected to the Republican Party, but they were more uh, negative about Americans in general. A lot of fat jokes when it comes to America, a lot of jokes about sort of cultural, a lack of cultural refinement, which some of it's true, but it's one thing to think that. But they often, I remember whenever a Scandinavian was poorly performing and we would do a performance assessment, they couldn't describe exactly how the person performed, but the place where they all aligned is they said, well, you know, they have that kind of American attitude. Like everything negative was American. And so I did highlight that, that to them after several years that, wow, why is everything American uh, negative? So uh, I began to realize that there's uh, uh, a lot of uh, animosity from Norwegians and Scandinavians towards America. And I said, if Americans knew what you guys say about them, you wouldn't enjoy yourself on vacations. They would tell you to stay in Scandinavia. So it was at that point I began to really get back to, okay, what is it about being an American? I then, of course, went to purchase a, a Declaration of Independence and, and the Constitution and read it and to really get connected about those pillars and tenets of what it is to be an American. And so that it helped me to become more active in my Americanism as I was there, as I return home now. And so when you were there, though, you said that it was a safe environment for the kids. Do you um, feel that it's a much safer place to be than, say, in the state of Texas? America, as I described it to the, the Europeans, I said to them, because that where I worked, there were people from 40-plus countries that worked in our company. So we had people from all over the world. And of course, they had a very kind of um, 
idealistic view of America. So they wanted to know about a lot about America. And I said to them, America has everything that you might imagine. It has the dilapidated streets in Detroit. It has the drug infested cities of Portland uh, or in uh, Oregon. But there are many places in America that are very safe. I mean, many, many places. And so America has a wide range of things. So, but overall, I would say Norway is generally safer in a more mm, total sense relative to, say, America. And did you like Norway? I mean, as a, as a country, did you enjoy it? Was it beautiful? Did, you, did your kids like it? I, 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 there are things about Norway that I really liked. And there were things about Norway that I didn't like as much. My children are pretty much are Norwegian. They grew up there. They were, they were birthed in Norwegian hospitals. And so for them, they're just coming to America. So they're Norwegian children. But I would say the things I liked a lot about Norway is that, it, of course, I mentioned to you that it was safe. But also in the in the big cities, it's a quite an interesting integration of urban living and the nature. So you could you know go 10 minutes and go picking blueberries. And that was very fun to do. Or you can go hiking or you can go cross-country skiing. That was fun to do as well. I like that. Uh, they also have moose. Moose meat is very tasty. <laughs> For those who are <laughs> vegan, I'm sorry, but a moose burger is quite tasty. <laughs> yeah, so that's really good. And also what's very important for them are, are their waffles. Waffles and brown cheese. They call it brunost. Is there a large homeless population? Do you see a lot of street no, people? No, because, uh, because they have a great uh, financial strength, a lot of people are receiving governmental support. Uh, so you can have individuals who are uh, receiving governmental support that can live in the same neighborhood as someone who is working. They have two incomes, college educated. And I guess uh, it's a quiet thing people don't like to talk so much about. But one thing that's great, uh, and I really like this about Norway, you have six weeks vacation. That's fantastic. <laughs> and that's on top. Oh, Isn't that, that great that for is. the family? I think actually, if I had to, if I had to have an influence over some things in America, one of the things that the Scandinavia does better, Europe does, and I think we should do it in America to some degree, is the significant increase of maternity uh, leave that should be funded by the government. I think that's, I have seen the significant value of that. Now, we don't have to do what Sweden does or what Norway does, but I think that it should be material, uh, maybe six months or at least, I think, provided to women. They do eight months or a year in Norway, they do more than a year in Sweden. So those can be, you could debate whether that's too much or not. But I can say that time that a mother has with the child in those early years is so, so important. So I think that America should adopt something like that. I don't want to scratch at a wound, but we, we never, speaking of mothers, how did your mother pass? Yeah, she passed through shotgun, self-inflicted gunshot wound. I remember when I was... She, she had committed suicide. So the mental health took over. Yeah, exactly. I remember I would be going to class and I would talk to her uh, before I had to go to class. And she was like, yeah, I was thinking about driving off of a bridge today. And I was like, uh, no, mom, don't do that. Uh, that's not a good idea. We all need you, et cetera, et cetera. And it's good talking to you, but I got to go to class. You know, so that would happen a number of times. Uh, you know, so it was a little stressful for me when I was in college, you know. How did you sturdy yourself? You just have a strong, innate sense of self. Yeah, I've had some, uh, yeah, some challenges, but they learned to be strong. And uh, what I did learn, of course, is that, you know, I realized through that period that, you know, you cannot, you cannot save someone. People have to want to be saved. Uh, so if someone's really focused on doing it, I have learned that. So it, uh, it uh, became an important learning. But um, I remember when I got the call, I was coming home from class and I 
didn't hear a lot from my older brother because he was always uh, did doing different things. I the moment I heard his voice on the voicemail machine, uh, I knew something had happened, and that was what happened. Mm-hmm. What a tragedy for a young man. I mean, you are just amazing. Yeah, very tragic. I mean, it took several years for me to kind of kind of really settle down and be able to talk openly about it. And that didn't manifest itself in some rebellious troublesome teen, huh? No, no, no. I, I, I was 20 years old when that happened. In fact, she began to become unstable the moment I went to, to college. And I remember in the first semester, uh, I called home and my younger brothers were saying, hey, man, something's weird with mom. I was like, what? And I was like, yeah, and that was when it began. So we went through a few years of cycles. She had to be committed. My grandmother had to be involved. And then I would go home in the summertime uh, with uh, internships, et cetera. And then we had moments when she would come off that lithium, that medication that she would receive, and man, the behavior got wild. So she was under the care of mental health professional. But I remember talking with her. She didn't like lithium, and she was disappointed with what it was doing to her body. Uh, she was gaining weight, and she said she wasn't as sharp as she was mentally. She was just starting to go back to college, et cetera. And uh, so she said she didn't really like it. So uh, I, I think that factored in. She felt like she she confessed that she knew she she probably couldn't realize the plans that she had for herself before it had happened. So that was weighing heavy on her. So sad. Mm-hmm. Very sad. Very sad. I'm mm-hmm. so sorry. I think actually it was more difficult, quite frankly, for my younger brothers. Because my youngest brother, I was, when it first started, I was 18, 19. And he was 12. So that was quite difficult. And my father at that time was out of the scene. So that was really difficult. And when my mother passed, they had to go live with him. And that was really awkward for all three of them because suddenly he had to kind of be on the scene. Uh, so it, it was, I was at, I was at university, so it was difficult, but I didn't have to kind of try to find a, a relationship with him so abruptly. Such a tragedy, mental illness. Does that drive you more to want to have this kind of quote-unquote perfect home life and and raise your kids with everything you didn't have and a mother very different, you know, wife very different from your mother? No, I, I, actually, that doesn't come into my mind at all. Uh, I, just, I just enjoy, I enjoy people. I enjoy goodness. I've always enjoyed good people. And I what I discovered is quite interesting. I discovered, so in Detroit, uh, it's a, it has always been a predominantly black city since probably the 60s. There were more white people who lived in Detroit in the 50s, et cetera, but then you had the birth of the suburban area uh, after the the, the riots in, in, in both Detroit and all the other cities, et cetera. But when I grew up, there was only one kid in my high school. We had 650 people in my senior class, and there was one kid that was white, and I didn't know his name. So most of the people I had grown up with were all black people, and that's fine, they're humans. But they have this, um, they had this senior school trip called Close Up. I don't know if they still are around, but we took a bus ride to Washington, D.C. And it was the first time that I had met in a kind of uh, academic setting, but it was supposed to be fun. You go and see all the houses of government, et cetera. And I made immediate contact with people from, you know, who are white and from different areas. And it was kind of an eye opener, like, oh, people are people. And that was, and it also helped me to think, wow, there's a world outside of Detroit. And that kind of started my kind of, desire to kind of go and see the world and, and to live. And as I went to the University of Michigan, it's predominantly white. I had a lot of friends from different ethnic backgrounds. I was part of the black community, but also I made friends with a lot of people. And so wherever I found people that 
were fun and were easygoing, I always made contact with them. I, I remember a really funny anecdote from uh, Columbia Graduate School of Business. So I was the president. There weren't that many black students that were there, but I was the president of the Black Student Union. And some of the students approached me. These are professional people. At that point, I was a, I was a CPA. I was a tax accountant. So I was in the world. And these other people had done something similar. They came up to me and they say, Miles, why are all the white people friendly with you? I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I treat them nice. They treat me nice. We get along. So I, what I find that there's a commonality of human. God has made the heart of men alike. So what I, I have proven uh, through my experience that all people are the same. When I was in Europe, I had colleagues from 40 different nations. We all got along. All humans function the same. So my wife is Caucasian, but that was just by the fact that we she happened to have the same birthday as me. So I chose that uh, that person. And uh, what was important for me is that we have similar values, a similar view to life, similar important uh, aligned ambitions or, or things that we wanted. And then if we get along, hey, that works good for me. So that was how I tend to approach people. Now, when we talk about strong family values, what does that mean to you? Yeah, I, I really believe in a really important uh, nuclear family. And that's in the classic sense where the man is the husband, uh, the, the wife, the woman is the wife. I know we have a lot of different uh, family structures and they do the best that they can. My parents are divorced. So my mother was a single, you could say a single mother after uh, I was 10 and she did the best that she could. And I think she did a, a fairly good job, but we had challenges that were there that probably would not have been there if we had had uh, my father present and that relationship was functioning in a good way. So I think that what's important, and I'm glad you asked the question because this is very important for me. I think that uh, America needs to re-recognize the centrality of family and the need for families to thrive in the way that they once did because they are this they are the, the central point of development for the nation's future. If you have an erosion of the family, you will have an erosion of individuals that then erode the nation. And that is where I think we have kind of really um, lost a lot in that regard. But I think that we have we can make families fantastic uh, again to to realize their their true potential, to produce individuals that are positive and constructive and contributing to the society. And I think that families that love each other and love other people make for a nation that can be a nation that loves one another and produces good in the world. So I think that's the future I hope for America. So how do you feel about the LGBTQ community? Yeah, I think that every individual, God has made us in his image. And what does that mean? We are sovereign. We get to determine how we live our lives. And I respect everyone's uh, right to do that. Everyone should be free to choose how they live. So I respect the life choices that they make. And, uh, and I would say that um, I, of course, personally, from a faith perspective, would, would say that that's probably not God's design for them, as I understand what God believes about that lifestyle. But I, I respect their uh, right to choose that. And you think it's a choice? Yeah, I think so. Of course, everyone has complicated circumstances, family conditions, personal experiences, but I think that uh, people can feel very convicted about the, the lifestyle that they have. Uh, but I, I would think overall, in, in most instances, it becomes a matter of choice. And being a devout Christian and having a daughter, what is your stance on her body, her choice? Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> thanks for the question. I know these are touchy questions, and so I, I appreciate just being a, 
to be able to discuss them. I, I think the right, I, I would view it not as the right of the woman in this case. I would view it as the right of the child to, to live. And so I, I very much support the idea that children should have the right to come to full term. Uh, and I think a woman's sort of right of her body uh, shouldn't supersede the right of another individual to live. Of course, women should have the right to determine if they want to uh, have children or not, or go to college or not, or marry someone or not. That's their, their right. But with regard to a child, I think that I, th I would prioritize the child's right to live over a woman's right to, to, to terminate that life. I don't understand how, uh, and this is just my perspective, how a woman choosing what she's going to do with her body and the child that she maybe won't be able to take care of, maybe it's a product of rape, I'm not really sure how she's become pregnant. I just don't know how that affects others' relationship with their higher power. We should all be able to communicate yes, like this and have our own perspectives and still get along. I really appreciate uh, you giving me the opportunity just for a good discussion. Uh, we Americans need to get in touch with other Americans in this kind of way so that we can have an opportunity to reflect and consider. So I really respect and admire what you're doing. So I wish you a lot of success. My final question is, what is your number one hope for the future of America today? My hope is that we get through this period uh, that is, I think it's going to become worse for America before it gets better. But I am also really hoping uh, that we can, again, get back to family and really uh, speak to parents to make families uh, great, as we can use the expression great again, because it is the family that produces individuals that contribute and run this country. We have all the famous people, but we have tens of millions of unknown people that are essential to making the nation great. And they come from, uh, I hope, from a home that is grounded in a good moral ethical uh, foundation. So we need that because we have a, a tremendous deterioration in the nation manifesting in many horrible ways. We need to arrest the nation so that we can get back to a better place and become a better, a better nation. I'm hoping for that, families. All right. I, I'll look forward to a greater nation, a more unified nation with you. And again, thank you so much for your time today. Thank Take you care. so much, Miles. This episode of Democratic was hosted by me, Deborah Drucker. It was edited by Juan Sanson and produced by Lee Rocker and Chloe Cassins. Thank you to our engineers, Adam Burt and Hunter McKellar, for making me sound good. Our amazing music was well, performed was by Amy Nelson American and Kathy girl. Guthrie of Folk You. Be sure to rate and review this episode wherever you listen to podcasts. For more Deborah Craddock, check out DebraCraddock.com and our Instagram at Deborah Craddock. That's D-E-B-O-R-A-H Craddock. Like Democratic. Until next time. Political is personal, so.